welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Christine Dunn from our office joins Cosmo for 321 Go. Shakir Gregory joins me for an interview with Boston Globe columnist Adrian Walker. And of course, Two Minutes with Tom. All right, here we are. It's three, two, one, go. It's our return to work and reopening of the economy edition. I'm Cosmo Macero, joined by my colleague Christine Dunn of O'Neill Associates, filling in here on three, two, one, go for Cayenne Isaacs and Christine. Great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me, Cosmo. I'm, I really appreciate it. Excellent, excellent. Um, all right, let's just start overall with where we are this week here in Massachusetts. As of Monday, June 8th, phase two of the reopening of the economy plan in Massachusetts underway. Uh, Some of the most, uh, Christine, some of the most highly anticipated features of this, certainly restaurants and retail restaurants offering now for the first time in months, sit down dining, outdoors only, appropriate social distance measures, as well as continued takeout, retail stores with occupancy limits, and a variety of other important things, child care facilities and day camps, driving school. Um, people can have wakes and funerals again in the way they're accustomed with occupancy limits. Um, hotels and lodging, no events or functions, but hotels are now open. Um, uh, outdoor recreation, pools, personal services. These are the things, Christine, right, that, that start to make us feel normal again, that start to make us feel like we're living life. Yeah, and you know, I think you're really seeing that in the communities. I mean, we're seeing more and more people out. You know, I, I notice when I go on my daily walks, more cars out on the streets, even, you know, wondering, you know, in the back of my mind if the traffic famous here in Boston is going to start coming back soon. But one of the things I love seeing across the uh, communities, um, Cosmo, is the fact that a lot of towns are voting to have their town centers. Uh, streets closed so that so that more restaurants can have you know greater outdoor seating for people if they want to if they want to dine there. And I thought that was a great initiative by all the towns that are doing that. Really helps the restaurants a lot. Agreed. You know, not every we we work with a couple of uh, real estate clients that have restaurants as part of the property. Some of them, one in particular, has in this marvelous uh, oceanfront outdoor deck. Uh, as as a feature of its property, not everyone has that. And, and it's great to see communities, like you said, working with these businesses to create opportunity, to create space for them um, uh, to, 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 to start serving people again and start getting activity happening again. Um, so that, so, that, so that, that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. And that sense of routine and ritual too, right? I mean, we're seeing that um, with, you know, the opening of the funeral homes and, and things like that, where, you know, people can congregate and come together in ways that are really important to them. I think that that's been an important move for a lot of families and communities who want to have a, a little bit more of a sense of normalcy on things. I noticed with the outdoor recreation, too, it's good to see. I think that there are, um, I think there, there are, you know, for the most part, efforts to continue to social distance, although, you know, I think a lot of people are wondering if some of that is going to start to slip as uh, as people get comfortable outside. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think different levels or um, of comfort that people have is going to be interesting to see um, what things that they 
they're absolutely going to rush out to do that they haven't been able to, or what things they're they're, they're going slow on. I um I'll be honest, I, I you know I I have traditionally eaten out at restaurants as much uh, as the average person, maybe a little bit more, but um and and I had told myself after a while, I'm like you know I. I miss going to a restaurant, but I don't see myself going back right away. I can live with, and then boom, the Monday, Monday night, there I am, like with my family out, uh, you know, in, in an outdoor dining environment, uh, very well handled on the South Shore, uh, uh, having a nice meal outdoors, and and it, it, I, I was like, well, here I am. The first moment possible, I'm back at a restaurant, and I felt comfortable in that situation. Now, um. I think if if you're presented with a business that is not handling the uh, distancing measures properly, you might not feel that comfortable. But how about yourself? You know, what what things are you looking forward to that you're ready to do? Well, I've been definitely looking forward to being able to access things like parks and stuff like that. But you know, even simple things like going for you know your standard doctor's appointments. I went for my um, annual eye exam last week and. I gave my doctor a lot of credit. You know, I was standing outside the door. They they were really organized about all the procedures and everything. And they had a protocol for when you call in and they really limited the number of people who were allowed inside the building and the whole setup. And they were so explicit about the mask wearing, about cleaning everything before you used it. And I said to the doctor afterwards, I was like, you know, I was really anxious and I didn't realize how anxious I was until I arrived there, right? And I found myself really curious about what was going to happen. And I had so many questions, but just watching how methodical they were going through each step, by the end of it, it was like what you said, I felt a lot more relaxed. I felt a lot more confident about the process. Um, it made me feel a lot better. You know, I have, I have several kids um, and you know, you have to make sure that you're being proactive about their care on a variety of fronts. It made me feel a lot better about how thoughtful people are about, you know, establishing things in order to make people feel safe. Agreed. Really important being able to go back and um, go to medical appointments and things like that. Uh, it's an important thing to resume. So it's uh, uh, definitely a milestone week. Most of the milestones have been very negative around um, number of cases and deaths reached and things like that. So a very positive milestone here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. All right, Christine. Excellent. Christine. So now one of the things that we're seeing is education and plans for the restarting or normalization of education in some way, in some partial way, certainly nationwide and here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And we're getting guidance from the Department of Education about measures that are going to be necessary in order to reopen schools. That's a great sign, but it is pretty clear based on the necessities for social distancing and for uh, ensuring the, the health and safety of not just the students, but staff and faculty, it, it's impossible to have a full and complete school day starting in September. Therefore, students are gonna still be home at least part of the time, part of the week, maybe even part of each day. And that creates a real impact on households, on working parents, on working moms, and 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 I think that that's uh, that's something that's 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 really doesn't necessarily have a good answer right now, right? 
Well, I definitely think you're right. I mean, as you might imagine, this is a topic very, very close to my heart, not to mention it is my life. Um, I am one of those moms, working moms of three children, a variety of school ages, everywhere from, you know, a fourth grader to a junior in high school. And I think really actively about this, and I've been talking with a lot of people about it um, at all levels. Um, you know, some are friends, some are colleagues, some are just, you know, um, members of different groups, you know, trying to get a handle about how people are thinking about this, both from a practical level, but then also from a policy level, right? And the impact it's going to have, um, you know, at a very practical level. I mean, let's just even start now. You know, we're looking at summer and a lot of camps have had to cancel if they're not able to go virtual. Um, and as a parent, you're looking at this and going, how much more uh, virtual screen time do I want to enlist my child to have? But there's a very practical reality of, you know, needing to do work. So you're kind of facing that choice about how to handle this. And then, you know, just earlier we were talking about the economy opening up. And, you know, as companies and employees start thinking about, well, what does return to work really look like? If you're facing childcare struggles, how do you manage that, right? So, you know, I just recently talked to a, a client of ours, actually, um, who's, um, who's part of a, a program that runs a series of classes in their office building. And in order to meet social distancing, they had to go from two classes a day to four classes a day. And what this means for her is um, she actually has to get to the office um, at 5.45 each day so that she can be there in time to um, help monitor the protocols that they've instituted in order to try to keep everyone safe. So they're doing all of the right things, but the reality for her in order to be able to meet all these obligations is that she has to get up at 3.30 in the morning to get ready, get everything at home organized because um, you know, she has two young children at home and she doesn't feel comfortable sending them to daycare yet. So she tries to get the house all prepared while her husband and then a part-time nanny help take care of them during the day. And she's got an hour-long drive into the office and then she has to monitor everybody who comes in and out of the buildings four times a day in addition to doing the rest of her job. And, you know, this has only been going on for a short time because things have just started opening up. But, you know, and just thinking about her story and, you know, she's very committed. She loves her job. She loves the people she works with. But that's really burning the candle at both ends. And it just raises an interesting kind of policy and society question about how do we continue to support women who want to work and who want to be part of the workforce and who even want to return to the office um, if we don't, as you said, Cosmo, have schools and other forms of childcare available to, to take care of these young kids during those hours. Uh, I think it raises a really big question for us as a society, but for lawmakers as well on you know what kind of support can we provide um, in order to ensure that we don't see a shrinkage in the number of women participating in the workforce for the foreseeable future um, and, you know, help them keep and maintain their jobs. I agree. This is, um, this is the kind of transformative event that 
has already had and will continue to have an impact on policy and um, and really conventions and habits and societal norms and the, and the things that we do and and will it will bring about change it, it, whether we like it or not in a lot of different areas and, and I think this is one of them and the idea probably is all right how do we steer that in a way so that in the end uh, we're not just making the best of things but we've come out the other end with a with a better way of balancing work life and home life and uh, and 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 integrating education into family life and and all those things hopefully we can we, this can be a catalyst to to make things better uh for working parents and and, and such but i think you're seeing a lot of people from families and communities to employers and even policymakers um, trying to be innovative with this, right? Recognizing that this isn't a short-term issue, um, that there are longer-term impacts that we're going to be dealing with. And, you know, for the foreseeable future, this is the way it is. Um, you know, listening to educators and how they're trying to be very thoughtful and creative in the way they handle um, school days. They're conscious of the fact that parents are dealing with this. Um, they're trying to figure out solutions, leveraging technology in order to make it happen and, and still be equitable. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like we're all struggling a little bit for what the answers are. But at the same time, I'm, I'm heartened by the fact that we're all having very open conversations about it. One of the, one of the interesting things from my perspective is just how open people are right now about the fact that they have families. You know, there was a time when, you know, particularly as a as a working mom in the in the professional environment, you almost felt like you had to keep your family in the shadows, right? And if you had a conference call, it was that joke, you know, you had to go hide in the closet in order to have the uh in order to have the uh the professional call, right? But but there's no closet anymore, right? We're all out in the open. I mean if you look at all these Zoom calls People are holding babies. They're rocking them. Kids are coming in and out. People understand that there's a life out there, right? And and I think that that's been a real revelation for a lot of people in terms of okay, we're all in this together. So, you know, I've been uh, I've been taking a look at a lot of the different studies and everything that have been coming out. And I know the United Nations and others have put out these reports warning about, okay, is the progress that women have made in entering the workforce going to fall back because of all of this? But I think that there's an argument to be made as well that, well, this has kind of blown it all out in the open and we're dealing with it openly in a way we never have before. And, um, and so it gives us really an opportunity to be very innovative in how we think about this moving forward. And I think about it, too, not just in the context of childcare. I think when a lot of people think about working women and return to work, they think of it in the context of childcare. But I also think about it in the context of workforce development and taking care of our aging population. And I think that, you know, a lot of our clients, Cosmo, as you know, deal with this issue all the time um, and ask these questions a lot. But, you know, care in general is, you know, it works at both ends of the spectrum, and I think we have an opportunity here to really think about, you know, how we help people, men and women, juggle these family responsibilities better when it's time for us to all return to work in a in a in the new normal, 
<laughs> great, in, great insights, Christine Dunn. Excellent. Thank you. And yeah, you know, our work lives are, have been forced into our home lives. And that's going to mean you're going to catch a glimpse of of a kid running in the background, or you're going to catch a glimpse of, uh, you know, uh, someone who is managing in real time their household, their family, and their job. That's the reality we're all living with. But uh, great insights, Christine. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Cosmo. Hi, everyone. This week, my colleague Shakir Gregory is joining me. Thank you, Shakir. And uh, we are proud to have Boston Globe columnist Adrian Walker with us today to talk. Adrian, welcome back to OA on Air, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So this is, of course, really an unprecedented time in our country and around the world. And I think we started using the word unprecedented a few months ago to reflect the current events related to the COVID-19 pandemic. However, today now means even more. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the calls for justice, systemic change, daily protests, they're also unprecedented. So the movement or the moment itself is not new, but it certainly feels different this time around. Is that like your sense of things? Oh, heavens, yes, of course. We have a pandemic on top of a huge social movement on top of, lest we forget, a presidential election. So mm -hmm. there certainly hasn't been this much going on of this import in any time, uh, certainly in my career. Yeah. And that are all really very much interconnected, too. Yes, exactly. Yes. So, um, Adrian, it's Shakir. Um, one thing that I, I, you know, speaking of unprecedented, one thing that was really eye-opening was the New York Times recently um, documented the shift in public opinion on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, in just the two weeks since the George Floyd protest really kicked off. And you're seeing a 30 or 35 point swing where you're talking about public opinion shifting in favor of Black Lives Matter to plus 25 points. Um, and I just wanted to talk about that. And, you know, just as Cayenne mentioned, you know, what is it what's different this time? about what's happening in the country that, you know, is, is really uniting people around this call to action? You know, it's, it's really a remarkable moment, and it's something like that we've never seen before. As long as I can remember, we've talked about, you know, people have talked about how we need to have a national conversation about race, and it always fizzles. Well, that conversation we've always talked about, we're having now, and it's a perfect storm of a few things. Uh, first of all, it was the George Floyd video because it was so widely circulated and so graphic, and so horrifying, it, w it became one of those moments where everybody so so sort of got it, you know? Mm -hmm. And added to that, you know, it comes as we're all under this sort of national lockdown, just beginning to ease. But I think people were already tense and kind of on edge. And I think that has kind of driven the explosiveness of it all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but certainly there's just sort of a feeling of reckoning, a, a recognition that this is a colossal problem, and it's not just a black problem, it's an American problem. That's something that everybody has to work together to solve. You know, the other day I, was, I saw, um, yesterday I saw an advance look at the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list is coming out Sunday. You know, and I think eight of the books are by black writers and are books about race. 
Now, some of those books have been bestsellers before, you know, they weren't a bunch of obscure titles, but it shows where sort of the national conversation sits right now. Yeah. And um, I was I was actually uh, just talking with Kyan about that bestseller list and, you know, everyone in the country or the vast majority of people in the country are, are recognizing that, as you said, you know, this is an American conversation, not something that is, you know, not just a black conversation. So I, I definitely agree with that. Um, so speaking of, you know, some, some recent writings, um, you recently wrote your column on, uh, the calls to defund the police, which is now, and it has emerged as a major call to action among the movement and particularly around, uh, the George Floyd protests. So from your perspective, what does defund the police mean? And, you know, what, what are folks seeking, um, when they say to defund the police? It means different things to different people, but I think fundamentally what it means is that we need to rethink policing. We need to rethink how the police operate. We need to think what it means to keep communities safe and, you know, what it is exactly we're keeping them safe from. I don't think defund the police for most people really means dismantling police departments so much as it means thinking again and giving a fresh thought to their mission. Uh, as just before we uh, started today, Mayor Walsh proposed a 20% reduction in the police overtime budget, which is, I think, $50 million, I mean, the total budget. So the cut would be $10 million and giving that money to social service programs. I, I don't know whether that will be enough to satisfy people who are asking for things, but I think that kind of rethinking, what can we take away from police and how could we spend those resources better is part of what's at the heart of this. I thought that in your column, you know, at the top of it, you did say important clarification. Perhaps we should start with this. Virtually no one wants to get rid of the Boston Police Department, even if that were possible. And I think that that could go for any police department. Um, and it's an, it's an important clarification for people to understand the idea. It's such a complex issue when we're talking about putting resources in different places, in social services, in rehabs. Uh, Joe Biden this week uh, said, you know, we should be spending money to make more rehabs for, uh, you know, people who are suffering from drug addiction rather than putting them into more jails. Um, and then on the local level, you know, looking at better funding for schools instead. It's such a complex issue that to boil it down to the two words, defund police, is is almost not fair to the to the conversation as a whole. I agree with that, but I would add that I think that for some activists, there's a, sort of a sense that you begin at an extreme position and then you end mm -hmm. up where you really wanted to go, right? So you talk about the fund the police when everybody knows you're not going to fund the police, but it's a way to begin the conversation at a place that, in a way that's not starting from a place of incrementalism. It's a way of signaling that you're looking for sweeping and systemic change. Absolutely. And I think it's done that. It really has, you know, to have uh, mayors, as Mayor Walsh just did this morning, uh, say that, yes, we need to look at how we're allocating funds. Uh, the city council in Minneapolis, wow, that's apparently a tough word for me to say today, um, had already announced its intention uh, to defund as well. And it, to your point and the, the larger point, it really is part of this national conversation about real change, uh, not just talking about change. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and again, I, I think it will look it will look different in different cities, you know, also. 
So we'll see just how far the regions are going here. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting as well is um, how this conversation about policing is also kind of touching other areas about the, you know, the, the, the history of, of towns. And I know Boston has, you know, more history than anyone. And so um, as you look across the country, as people are reckoning with um, statues and, and monuments dedicated to Confederate soldiers, dedicated to folks who um, were, were pretty um, were, were pretty avowed racist, like the, that, that former mayor of um, Philadelphia, how, how do you feel like this movement has been um, capturing, you know, a lot of different topics and really engaging in that conversation about, you know, the America's history of racism? Well, what we're seeing, and this certainly isn't going to be news to any African-Americans, is that, you know, the points of frustration are many, you know. This is a many tentacle monster, if you want to put it that way. And so everything's on the table, from policing to monuments to, you know, anything else. Yeah, and that's that's definitely something that we can all see has been kind of spilling over as, as we start to unpack that, and there's a lot of, of companies as well, have been looking at ways that they can get more involved. Yes, of course. And it's worth remembering that a lot of these movements, you know, particularly if you think about the monuments, a lot of these movements aren't new, but they've been given more momentum right now. And this this has become the perfect moment to push for that thing that perhaps was not uh, getting a lot of momentum a year or two ago. Yep. Wholeheartedly agree. So. You know, speaking of a moment versus a movement, um, so what, what would you say is next, in, in your opinion, and how do we turn this this moment of, you know, great attention and the great will politically to do something, how do we turn that into real policy change, do you think? Given how far we are a month ago from where I would have thought, I hesitate to make predictions about what's <laughs> next. You know, and I think anyone would probably be smart to exercise some caution there. But, you know, the next thing that looms large, of course, is the election. So, you know, the thing that I think about a lot is how is this going to affect November? You know, how will it affect turnout? How will it affect what people are pushing for? You took my last question, Adrian. You just answered it. <laughs> um, no, but I, when we when we talk about that, we look to know we look to November. Um, we have a presidential election as well as a number of other elections, you know, down the ballot uh, in various states throughout the country. What can we be doing, or you know, how should we be thinking about turning this action and this movement into voter turnout and votes on election day? Well, precisely, it's about now. How do we move from from protests, which are important? to sort of voter mobilization. And I think, you know, look, everybody wants to contribute to something. You can contribute to the people who are registering voters in your town. You can connect with the people who are trying to help turn out voters in whatever on whatever side you want voters turned out on. And, uh, you know, and also, you know, people will be phone banking for candidates, not necessarily in their own backyard, but all over the place. So I think at this moment, there are a lot of ways to be active and a lot of people who want to be active, and there's all this sort of unprecedented energy. So I think that's where it goes next. I think it goes into who's going to be running our country in 2021. All right. I think that's that's a great follow-up, and that's great advice. Um, so I, I'd like to say thank you, um, Adrian, um, and to, you know, to all of our listeners, feel free to check out 
um, Adrian Walker's column. Um, you've been discussing a number of issues related to uh, related to race, um, both in Boston, but especially recently. Um, you've been really, uh, I think, putting a, a fantastic perspective uh, on everything that we're seeing happening in the country right now. minutes with Tom. Hi, Cayenne. Here we are remote. I think this is the 12th week in a row or something. Maybe maybe even more. Maybe 13th, 14th. Time time has lost all meaning, Tom. Time, time has lost all meaning. Um, if I'm on the phone with you, it means it's end of the week sometime. <laughs> at least halfway through, usually. But yes. How are you? We we didn't talk last week because last week was our annual Pridecast. That's right. So uh, a lot has happened in the last couple of weeks since you and I have have spoken for two minutes with Tom. The um, yeah, it, the, the world is uh, the world is really exploding right in front of us, isn't it? Huh? Between the George Floyd death and the protests following. Um, in the pandemic, rising in seven or eight states and on the other side of the curve in our state and other states here in the Northeast. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a troubling time, to be very honest with you. And, and people are, are doing their best to kind of withstand it and do the, and, and have life go on as naturally as they possibly can. I will tell you though that I was the oldest protester at the Howitch, Massachusetts protest. <laughs> and you know it's a, it's a town uh, during the winter of around 11,000 12,000 people in the summer blows up to about 40 or 50,000 but um it had a thousand people on the green uh which uh, at the park it was great it was really something to behold it was absolutely peaceful everybody wore a mask it was very diverse and everybody kept socially distant, and uh, it was. I was proud to see as many people out there as, as there were out there. It was a great showing for a very small town. Anyway, that's great. When was that? Was that over the weekend? Yeah, it was. Last, it was this past Sunday, and um, you know these protests are continuing all over the country and all over the world on a continuum. Mm -hmm. I mean, the statement is deep, um, and and the realization on the part of certainly white America, that this has to change. I think it's being heard, at least being heard by a great number, a great number of our, of our population. And it's really very important to see. Finally, maybe finally, this is, a, this, is a, this is a one, this is a one act that made America wake up and pay attention. Hopefully yeah, I think, I would say anecdotally, I have noticed you know, just on social media, um, based on people I, I, I follow or I'm friends with, people that have I have noticed in the past have never been political in nature, got involved in, in, in politics or social justice issues or commented on them in any way, are all of a sudden very interested and active. Um, and that's been really great to see. I think that this has you know, it's incredibly unfortunate uh, that goes without saying that it, it's taken what it's taken to get to this point. But right. it's gone be it's gone beyond the 
the group of people that I think typically in the past have paid attention to these things. And that's not just uh, black people or white people. Um, it's just gone. It's really affecting the whole population. We're seeing conversations among people that we've never seen before. And I think that that is vital um, for real change to come about. They saw something real happen on television where they saw the death of a man who was being choked to death. Um, and they know that it happens all too frequently. Um, and, and it's just an injustice. Um, you, you know, it's interesting to me. I, the one line that I carry with me from Martin Luther King, and, and I paraphrase it, when he said, you know, it, it won't be the elite right, uh, left of centers from our universities, nor will it be the Ku Klux Klaners that will prevent us from moving ahead. It, it will be the moderate white that wants calm as opposed to justice. And, um, it's pretty powerful. And, and perhaps where we where we finally are as as That's a nation. Right. That's right. I think I think the moderate white has has picked up their head, man and woman, and just said, you know, enough is enough. Um anyway. So it's it's moving and it's lasting. And for those people who say, Okay, the point's made, enough is enough, you know what? After 400 years, if I were a black person, I, 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 I'm sure I would be leading the charge uh, or at least attempting to. So and to keep it alive, because the longer they keep it alive is a reminder that um, that we have to change. That society has got to change. This is 400 years old and 300 years ago, our forefathers in, in putting together the Constitution of the United States you know, left out slavery. And we've been paying as a society and a culture ever since. It's the it's the flaw, the only flaw our forefathers had. Anyway, so we're living with it today and hopefully it's changing. It's taken a long time. We'll see what happens. More to come. I'm sure we will continue talking about it. Hey, and, as we uh, say about this and the pandemic, there will be a brighter day, that I guarantee you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks. Always nice to talk to you, Kyan. On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill & Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA on Air is produced and edited by Ashley Locken and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week. As a reminder to our listeners, OA on Air is currently being recorded remotely.